invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that James 2 passage. But when your finger is there, we're going to flip it real quickly as we begin in Acts 6. In this series, James recently, in our last message and more importantly, has been telling the church at Jerusalem, the very first church, about how crucial it is to be a community of impartiality. And they are not to, as James instructed them, to make distinctions between people based on externals, but on eternals. And there's a great example of how James doesn't just say things, uh, to, but he has to practice it in his own ministry. And if you read in chapter 6 and verse of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, here's what James had to do in his own church when he faced some discrimination issues. It reads, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the arose against the Hebrews because of their widows being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. As you read that passage, it becomes pretty obvious that one of the first problems they had in the early church was a problem between two different cultural groups. Those two groups were described by James as one of them are Hellenistic and the other is Hebraic. And that means all Jewish people, but they were different. They had a lot of similarities, but they were very different. And here's the main difference. Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek and Hebraic Jews spoke Hebrew and mostly Aramaic. If you were a Hellenistic Jew, it was probably because you lived the bulk of your life outside of Israel, and they would say the world. And so they had, they thought in Greek, they spoke Greek, they were more cosmopolitan, they had a different outview in life, they might do some things differently because of where they lived and how they lived. But if you were a Hebraic Jew, most likely you had lived your life completely in Israel. And you, you spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and you may not even have known Greek that well at all, except you had to use it for business and such. And so they had a very different view and outlook on many things. And the problem was, is that the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected. I don't think, as I read the scripture, that it was overt, meaning it was done on purpose. But in the large number of people that had gathered and become part of the early church, the Hebraic people were being, the widows in particular, were being neglected. And the issue was about the daily distribution. You can read that in yourself from verse number one. The daily distribution was a fund, kind of like we do a deacon's fund, so to speak, and help those who have needs within and without our community here. They had a fund that Christians could contribute to. And especially it was given to people who didn't have a job and didn't have a regular income so that they could help provide for them. And especially it went to help widows. Uh, widows were on the lowest, you know, widows and orphans, James already said in James 1.26, were some of the lowest people as far as economy goes and, and finances and culture. So that daily distribution was put in place to take care of their needs. 
Now, it happened to be that the Hebrew widows were being better taken care of than the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And so what do the apostles do about it? Well, the apostles get together and they have a meeting and they decide that they're going to have a new leadership group. And they're going to be, and you can't see it in the text for so much, but they're going to have Hellenistic Jewish men lead this group. And their names are listed in chapter 6 and verse 5 that we read. And so here's the thing. All the apostles are Hebraic Jews and they have Hebrew names. But the new leader of this ministry, the new leaders, all have Greek-speaking names. Do you see what the apostles did? They are putting together a group that represents the, person, the group that's being needed. So they had those who were not getting a fair shake, so to speak. We're going to have leaders within the church who are just like them to be able to meet their needs. Why would the apostles do that? Why would they take the steps and go out of their way to do that? You know why? Because it was absolutely crucial to James and to the early church, the first church, that everyone be treated with equity. See, whether it's first century, fast forward it to 21st century. See, there's always going to be, there's always going to be cultural classes, clashes in a church. There's always going to be groups who have different perceptions and different perspectives on the same issue. There are going to be people who have claims and those who make counterclaims that you didn't get treated this way or I got treated. There's always going to be those things and there's going to be complaints on both sides of it. But the question that James wants us to ask this morning is how will we respond to it? How do we respond to those differences and disagreements? And here's what he says. To be a community of impartiality, a church that doesn't discriminate, a, pers- a church that doesn't show favoritism to one group over another. We have to be believers that choose, hear me, choose to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is the exact framework that the paragraph in James 2 that we read for us. James is going to set up a contrast. Look in verses 8 and 9. You're going to see it there. He's going to show a contrast between people who show partiality and people who love their neighbor as themselves. And the, and the contrast is marked off by two little if phrases. You see it? Let me show them to you. Verse 8, first one. If you really, if you really fulfill the royal law, if you are. See, if you are doing that. And then down the next verse, in contrast, but, verse 9, but if, if it says you um, show partiality, you're committing sin. So here he says, if you're loving your neighbor, that's the great thing. But if you're showing partiality, that's sin. And hear me, and right off the bat, here's what James wants us to know. That you as a Christian cannot be showing partiality and loving your neighbor at the same time. They are completely antithetical. They are polar opposites. They are at extreme other ends of the spectrum. So loving your neighbor, he says, fulfills the law... But notice, partiality breaks the law. Twice in the text, he says, you're a transgressor if you do that. See, loving your neighbor makes you a doer of the law. But showing partiality means that you are a transgressor of the law. And so here's what we have to understand. That being being partial is completely wrong in God's eyes and loving your neighbor is the right response because the two of them are incompatible. So let's take the time this morning, there's only two, and we're going to unpack 
how James talks to us as a church, as a community of believers, how we can fight favoritism by choosing to love others as we love ourselves. Now, I want you to get this. Look at the Bible. It says this in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law, and then it says, according to the scripture. Now, in the first paragraph in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he was giving us some reasons. But now he's going to say, let me add some biblical support to why partiality and favoritism and discrimination on every level is wrong. Three times in the book of James, he talks about this little phrase, according to the scripture. The other two, in verse 23 of this chapter, in chapter 4 and verse 5, he actually even says that this is what the scripture says. And in James' mind, when he's giving them the proof text in Leviticus 19, which we're going to look at in a minute, about why discrimination is wrong, he wants them to know this, that this isn't just James' idea, this is God's idea. In fact, so much that he looks at the scripture as alive itself, as if it's personified, and he says, listen, the Bible is talking to you this morning. Here's what, and here's a little line is, here's what the scripture says. So don't think this is some sort of cultural or social mandate, that this is just some reflection of somebody's good idea. No, he says this is exactly what God has said in his word. The scripture is speaking to us this morning about how important it is to be a community of impartiality. And so if you hold your finger here, he says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you didn't know it, that comes from the book of Leviticus. Would you turn there just for a few moments? It is worth our time. Leviticus 19 is instruction for the Israelites of how they are to live holy, to be a different kind of people in Canaan land when they're surrounded by worldliness and people who serve idols. So as you look at this text, I want you to see this because it says uh, 14 times in Leviticus 19, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Here's, I, I tell you to do this, and here's the reason. Because I'm the Lord your God. So if you follow me, you worship me. We'd say today, 21st century vernacular. If you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, that's the reason why you do these things. If you're truly a Christian, you have a non-fiction faith, and it's real, here's how you live as believers in the 21st century when you're surrounded by people who don't hold these viewpoints. And he says, five different times, love your neighbor. Would you look at him with me? 1913. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or to defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Verse 16. You shall not go around a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, he says. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ready? I am the Lord. So if you really know me, if you really have me as your God, if you're really following me, here's what you will not do. You won't cheat your neighbor. You won't show injustice. You won't hate them. You won't lie to them. But in contrast to them, you will love them because that's what it means to be my family. So can I tell you this? Read it back into our text. James says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
love your neighbor as yourself. See, it's not so much a morality statement or even a social statement. It is identity statement. Do you realize that when you practice discrimination or you show partiality or you are racist or any of those things that fall into that category, do you realize that you are acting contrary to your identity in God? To be a Christian, to follow God, means this, that I act like He does. I look at my life and see what He has done for me and that He is my God and that gives me the cues about how I should treat others. You remember back in chapter 2 and verse 5, He says, Has not God chosen those who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Do you know this morning that we don't do good things like loving our neighbor to get into the kingdom? We do those things because we have been graced into the kingdom. We are heirs. That means that we have been given a king and a kingdom. And our identity is not that we've been made royalty by our good works. It's because of his grace that we have made been heirs. And now we need to live like we are in the royal family. My college years I spent in England because my dad worked there for seven years. And I've probably told you those stories before. And I got to see Buckingham Palace. And I, I got to see, really, the queen walked right by me when I was at the royal tournament that my dad gave me tickets to. So I've seen Queen Elizabeth pretty close up. And I used to follow them a little bit and the crazy, enormous weddings that they had. and all. Of, but, you know, recently in the news, in the last number of years, people have been really... Tr- looking at the royal family and saying, hey, you know, it's one thing to be royal, but it's another thing to behave royal. And, and the way that there's seemingly disagreements, fighting, people leaving the royal family almost, going on their own so they can live the way they want. But I, I've come to the realization recently that for some of them at least, it seems that they want to be royal, get the benefits of royal, but not behave that way. You know, I think about perhaps that's true of some of God's children, right? I mean, God has made us heirs. He's given us a royal law, the fulfilled Torah that Jesus did for us. He showed us what it means to love people, but we don't always act royal, do we? Do you act royal at your job when people that you disagree with or people that are different from you Get on, your, you know, get on your nerves, under your skin a little bit? How do you respond to those things? How about people at church in the ministry where people who are just not like you, they don't think like you, feel like you, act like you? See, partiality, you'd have to say, is anti-king and anti-kingdom because we've been given a royal law because we're heirs. We've been graced by God, but sometimes we don't show that grace to others. See, I I believe that James is trying to say this in a nutshell. Royal people should give the royal treatment to others. I went to Philippines my first year at Faith Baptist Church. A number of pastors from all around America went. I think we had like 16 guys on our group. And so I got put into Antipolo. And uh, so I went there and... They gave me the royal treatment. I don't know to this day how they found out. But when I walked in, they had a a long dividing wall, probably about four or five feet high, in the big courtyard area. And I'm not lying to you. It had to be at least from that pew to that pew. And it was all filled. They didn't have cans or plastic bottles. They had glass bottles. And it was all filled about this high, all the way across with Mountain Dew. 
I still don't know to this day how they knew that I liked Mountain Dew, but they literally had, it had to be two or three hundred bottles of them. They weren't big. And so I walked up to them, I said, wow, you guys like Mountain Dew as much as I do. They go, no, 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 that's all for you. I go, oh, come on, I'm going to be here five days. You think I'm going to drink two or three Mountain, hundred Mountain Dews? I go, I don't know if I could do it, but I'm going to try. And they were all, they called, they would put them in a freezer for me, and then they took me upstairs, and they made a special room for me, and nobody else in the church, I felt kind of bad about it, nobody else in the church, but they put in and spent money to put an air conditioner in there for me. Because every day it was about 95 and about 95% humidity. So hot. I mean, I slept in sweat. It was so bad, but not in that room, right? That room was fantastic. And they showed me, and they were always trying to give me stuff to eat, I didn't know half the time what it was, but it was, I, you know, but they were rolled out the red carpet. They gave me royal treatment. Now, royal treatment, don't you know, in, in America or in the world, when you think about royal treatment, it's giving someone who's very important, very, very good treatment. When you give someone the royal treatment, isn't what that it is? But see, in Jesus's kingdom, it's not because you're important. It's not the externals. It's not because you're some great talent or ability or you have money no, in God's treatment, everybody gets the royal treatment. Everybody does. You know why? Because it's not the externals that we look and judge people by, but the eternals. It's who they are because of the king on the inside. And here's what James says. You know why you have to love other people as yourself and why you can't be partial? You know why? Because you're an heir of the king. Because you're in his kingdom. He has done all of this for you. So I tell you this, royal treatment is not about race, it's about grace. Royal treatment is not about what I have, but who I have in my life. Now, this is so important to James. He's going to say a little phrase, and it, it's meant to grab your attention. Because in this text, he uses it twice. Let me read it for you. Verse 8 again. If you fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what he says. See it? You are doing well. Now draw a line in your Bible, if you do that sort of thing, down to chapter 2 and verse 19. Because even though it's slightly different English wording, it's exactly the same two words in the original language. You do well. Look at 2.19. You believe that God is one. That's the Shema. That's the orthodox way Jewish people in Jesus' day would say that twice. Every day, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's orthodoxy. So here's what he says. If you are orthodox and you believe in monotheism, not polytheism, monotheism, if you are a monotheistic Christian or Jewish person, he says, verse 19, you do well. See that little phrase? Exactly. But notice what he puts right after it. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you do well. In other words, hey, it's great that you're orthodox, but don't get too excited about the fact that you're orthodox. If you don't have orthopraxy, your orthodoxy doesn't mean anything. See, the devils know who God is and understand who he is better than you and I ever will because they've been in his presence. They know there's only one God, but they are going to the lake of fire and it doesn't change the way they live every day, especially when it comes to how they treat others. So when he says, you do well, that's great, but think deeper. Look a little deeper into your life. That's what it means. It's good on the surface, but could there be more to it? So James, I think in chapter 2 
And verse 8 says, hey, if you fulfill the law, you know the scripture, you understand it, you believe that you're to love your neighbor. If you believe that, he would say, you do well. But that should be more to it. There should be more to it than just believing it. He says, you're going to have to practice it. And the rest of this chapter, when we get to it, is going to live, show you how to live that out. For right now, he says, take caution, be warned. Demons have orthodoxy but they don't have orthopraxy. And so if you're nodding your head this morning, externally or internally, I, Pastor Walker, I believe that. I believe we're to love others. We should never discriminate. If you believe it, but you don't practice it, he says, beware, because that's no different than a demon. In contrast, though, watch. Second, second conditional phrase. If you do this, verse 8, but, verse 9, if you do this, if you show partiality, if you don't live out your loving your neighbors yourself, you know what the Bible, James says? He calls it sin. Literally, the phrase committing sin in the Greek says, sin you are working. You are doing the opposite of what God says. And the word in the text sin means this. It's a simple, it means to miss the mark. Here's what James would tell us this morning. Loving your neighbor, neighbor is the bullseye and the target of love. But if you show partiality, you're not even hitting the target. Do you hear what he says? Matt Emmons, I've given this illustration before, was the best rifle, he was the best rifleman in this kind of competition, Olympic competition, and had been for many, many years. He was the shoe-in favorite to, for America to win the gold in 2011, and he was way ahead. He was so far ahead and so much better than everybody else that all he had to do is, on his last shot, not get a bullseye, but just hit anywhere on the entire target. That's all he had to do, and the gold medal was his. But in his preparation, and perhaps in his nervousness, he made a crucial mistake. He went from gold medal to no medal, and you know what he did? He shot the target in the lane next to him by accident. And so it was as if he'd never shot at all and missed the target completely. And he got no, he went from gold to nothing. I wonder if that's us. We know what the target is. See, I know what the bullseye is to love my neighbor as myself. And I know that to discriminate and show favoritism is wrong. But I wonder sometimes if we're aiming at the target that we ought to be aiming to together. I wonder if we're shooting at the wrong target. And the reason why we're missing is because we haven't got the eye on the bullseye. Yesterday, a guy came from Walmart. I don't know if you have done this or even know about it, but Walmart, the one that has the grocery store in it, they'll deliver your groceries for you. You can actually call them up and tell them you, on the internet, the app, you can give all your groceries to them and they bring them to your house. I think there's a fee once a month of $9.99 and you can do it as often as you want. So my wife was gone, and so we ordered a little stuff. My in-laws were at my house, and so the guy came to the door, and he walked up, and he started talking to me. Here's the groceries, blah, blah, blah. And I go, where are you from? Because I knew immediately. He goes, I'm from Haiti. And I go, como ye? He goes, what? <laughs> he looked at me like, how do you know that? And so he doesn't know. I only know like five lines. I go, komoye, nambule. He goes, he just stepped back. He goes, what? And then he started spewing off Creole like this, you know, talking to me. I go, whoa, 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 dude. I don't know that much. 
The only thing I, and then I, I go, Tet Kali, Bobes, Mercy, Pay, which means my head is bald. That's, I don't know why I know that. <laughs> but he starts laughing. He starts laughing. He's joking. He goes, how do you know that? I said, well, I'm the pastor at the church. Well, over there. And I said, we have a lot of Haitians in our ministry, and I've gone to Haiti a number of times. You know the first thing out of his mouth was? I'm coming to that church. I'm coming to that church. I go, why do you say that? He goes, because nobody does that. And you know, I said, I want you to know we do. You know why? Because we love God. And we love you. Why don't you come? He goes, I'm going to come. Now, I don't know if he will. But you know what I want to say to him? We love our neighbor. I praise God for all of you and the way that you love each other. Listen, there's so many cultures, so many backgrounds, so many different language groups, so many different ways of doing it. I was at Boaz's graduation. I'm sitting there with a bunch of people from Haiti in our church, and they're talking to me about eat this, try this, do this, and you know, they were pouring stuff on my plate. And I think, I just love the different cultures we have. You know, but you know, I know I also have to think thoroughly through culture because we don't always see things the same way. But I can tell you this, here's what I wanted that guy at the, at the door to know and the people of our church to know, that we love each other despite the differences and despite the disagreements even. Is that you? Can you love someone else if you're a Republican and they're a Democrat? Can you? Of course you can. What about theologically on non-essential issues? What if they like the King James Version and we use the ESV? What about that? Can we all be okay together? We certainly should be, right? Ready? Here's the test. What about people who get vaccine and you don't? Or vice versa. Are you okay with that? I am. How about worship music? How about I want to have all hymns, I want to have all contemporary. I wish we were a little bit more lively. I wish we were a little less lively. See, love your neighbor as yourself. Even if we disagree, even if we are different in how we think and how we brought up and what we like and what we don't like. Now, those are the two contrasting things. Partiality, no. Love your neighbor, yes. Now he's going to tell you, let me finish the sermon with three reasons why. Why impartiality is wrong. Now, circle them in your Bible because I want you to see them. They're all right there for you. Look at verse number 10 and verse number 11 and 13 because they're all marked off by the little word for. See it, verse 10? For whatever, for whoever, verse 11, for he who said, verse 13, for judgment. Those are the little words, the word for, that gives you, here's the three reasons why scripturally you and I need to not be involved in impartiality or discrimination. And the first one is this, verse 10, because you can't have selective obedience. Selective obedience is, listen to what he says, for whoever keeps the whole law, look at the contrast, but fails in one point. See, see the big contrast? The whole law one point. So you got, you're doing everything right over here, but you're really blowing in this one thing. He says, guess what? If you just keep all of it and do a really good job, but you're really messed up in one area, you're guilty of all of it. You're guilty of all of it. So let me break it down to you. You can't keep the first half of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Love God alone. He's the only God. Love him, no craven idols, no images. But you can't be doing all the God stuff and not do any of the second half of the Decalogue, the people stuff. 
You can't drive a wedge between law and love. You can't say on Sunday morning, God, I love you, I worship you, you are so awesome, and I raise my hands to him, but I wouldn't raise my finger to help someone who was poor and needy in our church. So you can't do that. You can't say, God, I love you, but I'm really not interested in so-and-so because they're so different, and we disagree on everything. And and, No, he says, you can't be doing that. You can't do that. You can't keep the whole law but fail in one point. Micah 6.8 says this, What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, listen, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Not just to have mercy, to love it. Delight in it. Showing kindness to other people. See, you can't say that you're keeping God's law if you're obeying in some areas, but not in others. Catholics would say there's venial and mortal sins. There's the ones that are smaller, not so bad. If you're guilty of those, you won't go to hell. But the mortal ones, you know, if you do one of those, you're in big trouble. Now, here's what James does in the second one. And have you ever said this? Hey, Pastor Walker, I may do this, but I don't do that. You ever told yourself and try to justify, make yourself feel better about yourself? Hey, you know, hey, I may be a little partial sometimes, may have a little racist, you know, problem, but you know, but let me tell you this, at least I'm not, and you say, I'm not unfaithful to my spouse, or you know what, I'm not a drug addict, and I don't get drunk on the weekends, and I show up at my job, and so I, I don't do this, and I'm not the best at that, and we, you know, we kind of blow it off a little bit, Right? James says you can't do that. There's no such thing as selective obedience. And then he gives an example or an illustration of it in the second little four in verse 11. They're attached. And he says, verse 11, For he who said, meaning God, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not murder. Now imagine this. This is facetious. Imagine you're having a talk with someone and you're saying, hey, do you keep the commandments? And they say, hey, you know, I'm pretty good at it. I haven't murdered anybody this week been unfaithful to my wife a lot. But I'm doing pretty good on the murder thing, so I'm feeling all right. No one says that. No one says, I don't murder people, but hey, I'm morally perverse. So I guess it's kind of choose one or the other. And I, you know, I'm doing all right, 50-50 going on. Nobody says that. No one says, hey, if I do okay over here. And on the, now, now, I asked myself, as I looked at the text, why in the world would he choose these two commandments? Why talk about adultery and murder? Can you look real quick, James 4? James 4, because the people in his church had a problem with both of them. James 4, first four verses, reads like this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You know why there's disunity, conflict, schism, division? Where does it come from? Is it not this, that you, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have Listen, so you murder. Not, not literally, physically, but in your heart because of hatred. Because you can't get along with people who disagree. You covet and you cannot obtain. You, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. See it? Murderer. Adultery. See, so why does he use these two commandments? Because everybody would say, even then as now, that the two worst things that you can do relationally in any relationship is to murder or be unfaithful. Those would be the two top two, right? 
And James says, listen, you may say in your heart today, hey, I'm not adulterous and I'm not murder, but I do have a struggle with being impartial, but at least I'm not doing the worst things. And here's what James says, you can never think that way. Because James says this, you know how God sees discrimination and favoritism? You know how egregious it is? And egregious is a word that means really bad. You know how God sees it? He puts it in the same category as murder and adultery. And says, don't think for a moment because you keep the commandments externally on the two worst ones that you can go ahead and be discriminate or favorite or show partiality. God says, I see it as just as wicked as that. See, don't downplay the seriousness of partiality, James would say. And then he's going to tell us why. Why does God see it that way? Verse 12 reads, and this is his big thrust, remember? And so act. Don't we all, including Pastor Walker, don't we all have gaps between what we know and what we do? We do. All of us. But he says, especially work on this one. James is very deeply concerned as the pastor of the church that his people have a level of consistency between what they say and what they do. James wants us to have that. Why, verse 12 says, as those who are literally about to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, The judgment day is coming, and it is certain. And you're going to stand before Jesus to judge. And you know what the standard will be? It it won't be just that you kept the external letter of the law with the Mosaic Torah, but whether you fulfilled the Jesus royal Torah, which goes way deeper than just the outside whether you didn't commit murder. He wants to know when you stand before Jesus, he's going to not only lay open all the deeds that you had, but the desires you had, what you really were like on the inside. That's why he calls it law of liberty. Second use of it, 125 was the first. And the law of liberty is the demonstration that because of the grace of Jesus and how he fulfilled the law, that he has freed you. He has freed you from just trying to keep the external letter of the law to have a heart for people and a love for people, he says. So instead of always spending our time judging everybody else by the externals, he says, here's what ought to move you to live a certain way because you will be judged. You're going to stand before Jesus and he's not just going to say, hey, what did everybody think you believed by what you did, but what you really were what you really wanted in your heart. He says, someday you are going to be judged by that standard. So he says to them in verse 12, those who will be judged under the law of liberty. You're going to stand before God and I'm going to stand before God. And he's not just going to ask whether we did the right thing on the outside but whether we were the right thing on the inside. And then he makes the final statement, the last reason, the third reason why impartiality is wrong. Here's why. Verse 13, little word for, see it? Third reason. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. When you stand before God someday and he opens the books and doesn't just say, hey, what did you do? But what heart did it come from? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? 
He's going to say, did you really show, instead of partiality, did you show mercy to them? Were you kind to them, even if they didn't deserve it? Even if you thought they had wronged you and offended you, did you show mercy to them because they were poor and had need? Did you show kindness? Did you really have a ministry in their life? And he's going to tell us because of two things in this book. We need to show mercy like that because that's who we are. Listen to James 3.17. Don't turn there, just listen. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, hear me, full of mercy. See, the world's wisdom says someone bothers me, disagrees with me, offends me. You know what? I don't show them any men. I just go after them and I attack them and I'm going I'm to show them how wrong they are. He says, but that's worldly wisdom that comes from below and he even calls it demonic. But the wisdom from above, a different sort of wisdom, a wisdom that has felt the mercy of God yourself and looks in the mirror and knows how much of a sinner you are. He says, you look in that mercy and you realize, oh, that wisdom is full of mercy. It's not marginal mercy. It's not meager mercy. It's major mercy because you're full of it. Meaning this, it's your lifestyle. It's not just an event. It's not just a once in a while thing. No, person who practices wisdom from above with a non-fiction faith is a person that is so full of mercy that it comes out in almost every circumstance and situation. He says because that's who you are, but watch, even more than that, being merciful to others is who God is. And James has a verse for that. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, and you have seen, meaning God's dealing with Job, you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, see, listen, because it's who God is, it's, that's who we are. So God has a wisdom, and then out of that wisdom, that infinite wisdom throws a mercy, um, comes a merciful kindness to people. And he says, and that's because that's who he is, and that's who you and I should be. See, the more you read James, the more you say, you know, he sounds a lot like Jesus, his half-brother, doesn't he? I mean, he says this, if you don't show mercy, God won't show you mercy. That cannot be, that has to be the worst place to be in your life. That God would not show you mercy. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you don't forgive others, then God will not forgive you. Sounds the same, doesn't it? James knew what Jesus said. And he says, you know, as a church, we need to practice that. Let me finish there's a good Samaritan parable, you know it. And the main question that Jesus asks, was asked by it, by a lawyer who was an expert in the law, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's how the passage begins. How do I know that I'm an heir, inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells a story, but it's crazy that he doesn't say that you're orthodox. He doesn't talk about your beliefs. He doesn't talk about reading your Bible every day and how often you go to synagogue or church. Or, none of those things. You know what the answer to the question is, do I have eternal life is? Are you merciful to others? Because Jesus' story has a Levite and a priest who is the, these are the guys everyone looks up to, the pastors, I guess. And they come by the guy half dead on the side of the road, beaten and robbed, and they walk around the other side. And I'm sure they had their reasons. Holy, don't touch a dead person. It's all in Levitical law. Not maybe fearing for their own life at the thieves and the, the brutality, the people who did all that were still close by. I don't know what the reasoning, the Bible doesn't say altogether, but they didn't do anything. 
They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't look for what else they could steal from him. They just didn't do anything. They didn't show any mercy. The Samaritan, which is a, kind of a joke in Jewish culture that you would call good and Samaritan together. It's oxymoron. Samaritan guy comes by. He gets off his horse. He gets down. He touches him. He binds up his wounds. He puts oil on him. He puts it on his animal. He takes the time from whatever else he was doing to travel somewhere. He pays for him to stay in the inn until he recovers. And if he owes more, he says, I'll come back and pay you later. And Jesus asked the guy, which of the three of them were neighbor? Now the guy, the Jewish guy who asked the question is so hating Samaritan people that he can't even say the guy was a Samaritan. He was the one. He says, the one that showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say that the Samaritan did the right thing. He said, but the one who showed mercy. That's the answer. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Because when you don't show mercy to others, you know what it shows? That you've never internalized God's mercy to you. You never have. It's not because showing mercy and loving other people earns or works our way to heaven. It's not that. But if you are going to heaven and you're an heir of the king, you'll act like him. And Jesus says, that's what the good Samaritan did. He showed mercy. Is that you? Is that me? The songwriter says, the mercies of God, what a theme for my soul. Oh, I never could number them all. They are more than the stars in the heavenly dome or the sands of the wave-beaten shore. Listen, for mercy is so great, what return can I make? So, for mercy is so constant and sure, the answer, I'll love him. I'll serve him with all that I have as long as my life shall endure. See, when that is your desire, you have, you have internalized the mercy of God. It's a theme for your song and your soul, and you can't help it but do it to others. May God make Faith Baptist Church a community of impartiality because of the mercy he's shown to us. Let's pray. Ah, Lord God, wonderful, merciful Savior. We identify with a tax collector who stood outside the temple in Jesus' parable and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, Lord, how far, how far we have fallen short. How needy we are of your mercy. Father, as we look in the mirror of your word today and see the greatness of our sin, but also the magnitude of your mercy, we are moved by it. May we be moved to this point that we give it to others. We have freely received, so help us freely give it. May all of our relationships be marked by and characterized by this, that we are merciful people, kind, putting others in their honor above our own because we are heirs of the King. Help us to that end, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.